Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. And welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy, and I am so happy to say my co-host, Dr. Mim Fox, is back. Hello, Mim. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. So do tell, how was it over there in the Pacific with your microphone? (laughs) I felt like I was with the microphone the whole time. Um, I... uh, just to fill everyone in, just came back from a fantastic trip with nine social work and journalism students. We went uh, all the way to Fiji and Vanuatu on a uh, New Colombo Plan funded Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades trip. Um, and the whole point of the trip was to do some podcasting and find out what were the critical issues in the Pacific at the, at the moment and um, have some really interesting conversations around uh, gender-based violence and climate change and um, a whole range of different topics. And these incredible students worked so beautifully together. We went and met with a whole range of non-government organisations and government departments and worked with the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation and the Vanuatu Television and Broadcasting Corporation. And they just learnt so much. And now they're making this little mini-series of a podcast, four episodes, and it's called The Talanoa Stories from the South Pacific Podcast. And they are doing this amazing thing. And we're going to feature some of their recordings on some of our shows in the future. Fantastic. That is so good. So good. And like you say, we'll be able to link um, these episodes here. Absolutely. Uh, Watch this space, everyone, because these are fantastic new emerging practitioners, but also podcasters. And um, and this is where podcasting is going. It's co-production. We're working with each other in making, telling incredible stories and really hearing from people what actually lived experience around these social issues is like. So no, it's been really exciting, really good. So speaking about lived experiences and recording and social work in that this area, we have a recording that, look, it's, it's rather interesting, this one. I mean, when aren't they? for a start. But this one, I just wanted to say to people, the topic of this episode is around late in pregnancy terminations, domestic violence. So yes, some big issues, but I wanted to say from the outset, the real focus of this story, Mim, is around the complexities that um, this particular woman has to walk through Uh, just to secure a termination and by association the complexities of the work of this social worker to support this woman in being able to seek a termination. So look 
I, I would say to people, there's lots of details that you will hear in this, but it's more about the details of the hurdles that this woman has to jump through more than anything. So I, I have been listening with my systems theory lens. I've also been listening as a feminist and I felt my blood pressure increase. Well, it's gone through the roof several times and we'll come back to that in the reflection. And there's also some disenfranchised grief too that we'll be kind of reflecting on too. But yeah, look, this is a really interesting story and it, it reminds me of that old cliche, gee, the devil's in the detail. And this is a classic example of something that happens like legislation, abortion in this particular state is decriminalised and then services are just told, just roll it out. And so I know we'll have American listeners going, ah, you Australians, you've got nothing to complain about. Look what's happening over here in America. And whilst I'm absolutely not saying that it's anything like what it must be for American women. But I also just want you to hear how difficult it can be for many Australian women to seek an abortion in a public hospital. Yeah, and I, I think as well, you know, this is an area that we make a lot of assumptions about, about what actually happens on the ground. And so um, it was, it's been eye-opening for me, Liz, to listen to this story as well. So let's just, let, let's let everyone have a chance to listen to it and then let's come back and um, really think through what it means for women in this sort of situation. I'm a senior social worker that's working in a public hospital in regional Australia. I work primarily in maternity, paediatric and the critical care space. I'm going to be discussing a case that I was involved in where I supported a woman having a late-term abortion. In particular, I'd like to discuss how the state government has managed this since the change in legislation in 2019 and the impacts that this has had on hospital social work in particular. So um, prior to 2019, abortion in this state was considered by law to be a criminal offence. Women could only access an abortion by jumping through hoops and often telling doctors what they thought they wanted to hear. If you were fortunate enough to find a doctor who was pro-choice, they would only approve an abortion for financial and mental health concerns. Women had to make excuses for a decision to be made about their own bodies. Fortunately, in 2019, the Abortion Law Reform Act was passed and abortion was no longer considered a criminal offence. And as a result, the Department of Health released a framework for termination of pregnancy, which outlined that public hospitals should provide abortions for women requesting them. And just as a side note, most women in my experience looking to end their pregnancies will use the word abortion, and that's totally okay. I'll be using the language of termination of pregnancy, as this is the language that is used by the Department of Health and um, what is written in our policies and procedures. Also, I'm not a doctor, however, I do talk about some medical things in discussing this case, and this is just based on my experience working alongside the medical team. I would never give medical information to a woman in this process and would always direct those questions to the midwife or the doctor. So um, once the framework was developed, the Department of Health distributed this to all local health districts in this state. 
Um, and they said, just develop your own procedures based on the resources available to you in your area. And this, I believe, was the first mistake because it does not give women equal access to services. So in order to um, explain the processes that happen at my hospital, I'd like to introduce you to my patient, Amy. Uh, so I received a referral from a fellow social work colleague who was working in the ED. Uh, Amy had presented following an assault from her partner um, with which she was strangled. The ED social worker was supporting her and safety planning with her when Amy mentioned that she was approximately 17 weeks pregnant with her first baby and she would like information on abortions as she couldn't afford to have, have this done in a private clinic. My colleague did not know much about this area so she called me for advice um, and as I started to explain the process to my colleague, I decided it was probably just a better idea for me to go and see her myself and give her the correct information. So with her consent, I met with her to discuss this. Amy explained to me that she was in a very violent relationship with a man who was also using illicit substances and she did not want to be connected to him with a baby for the rest of her life. She said to me that she felt very supported with the DV by the ED social worker and only wanted to get information about the abortion from me. Uh, so I explained to Amy that our processes, including her needing to go to her GP and get a referral to our gynae clinic for the purposes of termination of pregnancy. She asked me at the time why she couldn't be referred to the ED doctors and all I could say was because it wasn't the process that's been developed. I also explained to her uh, that she'd need confirmation of pregnancy and gestation and full antenatal bloods. So thankfully at that time I was able to advocate for the ED doctors to complete these while she was there as it was one less step she had to do. So during our conversation her partner was repeatedly calling and she explained that she did not want him to know that she was considering a termination of pregnancy. So I discreetly provided her with my details and said she could call me further um, for further clarification at a time when she felt safe and I assured her that if she came in she would see me as her social worker so she didn't have to continue to explain herself. I walked away feeling a bit helpless, um, expecting that I probably wouldn't see her again. However, just in case, I handed over the information to our uh, clinical midwifery consultant who coordinates the terminations, just in case she did get a referral from Amy's GP. So when I talk about the procedures put in place, the document is 25 pages long with a long list of people who were consulted, none of which were social workers. Interestingly, social work is mentioned in the document six times with the expectation that we would be able to provide support, information and advice for women and for the medical team. We were given no extra resources and no training to provide this service for women and their supports. I, in fact, paid for myself to do the non-directive pregnancy counselling training and I know some of my team members watched TED Talks and read journal articles. We all want to do a good job in such an important area of work and we knew the referrals would just keep coming regardless. So back to Amy's story. Uh, she received a referral from her GP, which was sent to our gynae clinic, and the referral was taken over by our midwife consultant. So there's different um, procedures based on what gestation you are. 
So if you're under nine weeks, this can be managed by a GP with medication, which costs about $30 or $7 if you run a concession card. So from nine to 13 weeks, this can be managed at our hospital surgically with a procedure called a DNC or a dilation, dilation and curatage. You might have heard some people um, refer to this as a curate. So this procedure is an operation to scrape away any tissues or products from the uterus. And if this is done in a private clinic, which there is only one in my local area, it costs about $300. From 14 weeks, women must get a referral from their GP, ultrasound, bloods and non-directive pregnancy counselling with an outside service. And that's all before they even get to the hospital. If everything is approved, the woman must have a delivery in our birthing unit where she will stay until she's medically cleared for discharge. I should also state that the procedure gives health workers the opportunity to conscientiously object to being involved. However, they are required to refer on. Unfortunately, in my uh, local health district, there's many people who object in this space. And so that leaves very little options when it comes to doctors and midwives, um, which contributes to delay in women getting care sometimes. Women can have this procedure done surgically without a delivery up to 19 weeks in a private clinic. However, the further along in their pregnancy they get, the more expensive it is and can be thousands of dollars. And this, I believe, is due to the complexities of the medical procedure. And this is referred to as a DNE or dilation and evacuation. This is a second trimester procedure that uses a vacuum and sometimes forceps and other instruments. The doctors do not do this at the hospital that I work. Instead, women need to go to a women's hospital in the city, which is another barrier um, extending the time and adding another financial burden. So for Amy, the non-directive pregnancy counselling was organised through a family planning service and Amy did this over the phone and a report was sent to the hospital for review. By this time, Amy was 19 weeks pregnant. The next stage of that process was to convene a termination of pregnancy committee, which included social work, CMC, um, or clinical midwifery consultant, the birthing unit nurse unit manager, maternity operations manager, the consultant obstetrician and the director of medical services who provides legal advice. The social work role in this meeting is to explain the backstory, disclose any concerns and give any advice on how best to support the women. It's quite an intimidating meeting for a social worker as the other people in um, the matter have a lot of medical and legal experience and in high management positions. I distinctly remember trying to advocate to not focus on the reasons why Amy was wanting a top and whether, she went and whether we should approve it, but how we could get her to hospital in a timely and safe manner. Eventually, everyone agreed and Amy was offered an appointment with social work clinical midwifery consultant and the obstetrician. It took a couple more weeks for Amy to get to the hospital as she was trying to work this around her work commitments and also her caring responsibilities that she had for her dad. But the biggest barrier for her was getting out of the house without her partner finding out. She didn't turn up to a few appointments but was in constant contact letting us know why. When Amy did eventually come to her appointment, 
Myself, the clinical midwifery consultant and the obstetrician met with her to discuss the next steps. Due to the delay in getting to hospital, Amy was now 22 weeks, so the process changed again. From 22 weeks, two doctors are required to sign off on the termination of pregnancy. In Amy's case, this wasn't a problem. However, from this gestation onwards, due to the risk of the baby being born alive, they must have a procedure called a feticide. This means they inject the baby through the uterus with potassium so that they gently pass away. As mentioned earlier, this procedure is done at another hospital. So Amy had to travel two hours for the procedure and then return to this hospital to deliver on the same day. So the social work role in this initial meeting is to support the women while she gets the medical information. And that could purely just be practical, um, like getting water, tissues, or even distracting the toddler who might be present. I will then sit with the woman and her support person after the doctor and midwife have gone to ensure that they understood and make sure their wishes are heard and that they didn't feel judged. A really important part of the social work role is to talk to women about the different arrangements that will need, that will need to be made post-birth based on what gestation they are. If a woman was under 20 weeks, there's no legal obligation to have a funeral or register a birth. If they're over 20 weeks, the law states this is a stillborn baby and the baby's birth will be registered. They will need to be named and a funeral is required through a registered funeral home. These can be really hard conversations to have because most women don't know any of this information and they're hearing it for the first time. It can take some processing and not every person comes out of that appointment with a clear plan for what they want. Social work will often have to advocate to slow down a process that is quite time sensitive. It's a strange balance to manage and I'm not even quite sure I found that balance in my practice yet. So Amy had made up her mind on that day that she wanted to continue with the termination of pregnancy. She fortunately had the resources to go to the hospital um, two hours away and they had the procedure within the week. She was just over 23 weeks and when she returned to deliver her baby. I met with Amy in the birthing unit and she had a friend as a support person. Amy had not yet delivered and I wanted to clarify some of her wishes. We should not assume that because someone is having a termination of pregnancy that they don't want to make memories or that they are not grieving this baby. Regardless of what their concerns are for having a termination of pregnancy, they're still offered the same things we would if the baby was stillborn unexpectedly or very wanted. Amy was offered hand and footprints, an opportunity to hold and spend time with her baby, photos, and we provided her with lots of information on different supports in the area and what next steps are for organising a funeral and registering the baby's birth. Amy chose to see her baby and got some hand and footprints. She did not spend much time at the hospital and consented to social work contacting her via phone at a prearranged time when her partner would not be present. A week later, I contacted Amy and she was in the process of organising a funeral and she chose to keep the ashes of her baby. Her partner was aware and she stated he was supporting her to make arrangements. We arranged a six-week checkup for Amy where she could get a medical check and social work could also follow up. However, she declined this and went to her GP instead, which is well within her rights. 
When I reflect on Amy and the processes and procedures we've put in place at the hospital to support women with the termination of pregnancy, I feel really frustrated. Not only are we, not only are we making women jump through a lot of hoops to get a medical procedure on their own body, we're forcing a service on social workers with no resources and training. Our maternity and paediatric social workers do such a great job with the women, just like Amy, but we're also supporting women having stillbirths and miscarriages of very wanted babies. There's also women having terminations because their baby has significant medical issues. And while these things are the same, they're also very different and it's difficult to change your headspace when you're doing all of the things. My dream for this area of work is that there's equal access to publicly funded termination of pregnancies and more importantly that there are just as many social workers as there are doctors working in this space. My dream is that women can have a termination without having to explain themselves. I think it's a privilege as a social worker to support women through a process that can be quite distressing. It's a space of immense advocacy and empathy and no one case is the same. The knowledge I've gained in the last three to four years in this space has inspired me to do something I'd never thought I'd do, and that's continue my studies. Um, I'm now enrolled as a mature age student in a master's degree in women's and children's health, and I'm doing this with a view to get into some sort of policy work so that we have more social workers involved in making these really important decisions in regards to healthcare for women, because abortion's a healthcare issue, and that's all it should be. You know, I always, I always like to refer to immediate first reaction on listening to it again, Mim. How is it for you? Do you know, Liz, when I was listening to it, um, I, listening to this story, I, um, I was all poised to take notes, right? I was all ready to. And I actually didn't write any notes, not because I'm generally not a note taker, but because actually I was so engaged in listening to the steps that were happening and what the meaning meant and having a visceral reaction to that. I think I was getting more stressed um, as the story went on to the point where I couldn't even write anything down because I was just quite amazed at what I was listening to. What about you? I know that you had quite an impassioned response. I did. I absolutely did. Um... I understand what you mean. I, I, of course, I am the note taker in our partnership, Mim, and as usual, I've written pages because for me, it was really interesting to, one, be really clear about what constitutes a termination of pregnancy. And I love the language stuff. Health uses termination of pregnancy. Women use the term abortion. So, um, and sometimes you'll hear TOP, T-O-P. So, you know, at, at Health, we love a good acronym. But depending on the gestational period that that, that pregnancy's at will depend on the termination, right? And so, you know, like there'd be lots of people that think, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just uh, I go and see my GP, I go to Women's Health Centre and I, 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 I take a tablet. But what I found really interesting was all the different nuances and procedural changes that occur over the course of the pregnancy, depending on when you know that you're pregnant, depending on when you um, ask for help. But gosh, a couple of weeks makes a hell of a difference. And you know, the other, like, 
when you think about Amy's story, so Amy started, she, she came into emergency department at 17 weeks. She had her termination of pregnancy at 23 weeks. So six weeks went by and my goodness, what a difference it meant between 17 weeks and 23 weeks. So I get it, Mim, all those, yeah, all the different nuances and of course, how much it then impacts on the role of social work. But that wasn't so much my initial reaction. My initial reaction was unbelievable yet again. Yet again, the health department will release, um, you know, make a statement that now you'll be able to have a termination in public hospitals. We're not going to resource it. We're just going to let the local hospitals work it out themselves. We're not going to provide staff that are actually trained and educated and happy to work in the area of terminations. We're just going to, you know, roll it out. And, you know, if you don't have staff that want to work in that area, yeah, well, you know, sort that one out. And the remaining staff who are prepared to work in that area not going to have to, what? What did I hear her say? Send them themselves off for training or watch TED Talks unbelievable me I couldn't believe that social workers were needing to take themselves off to watch TED talks just to get any education in this space like so that is it, that's shocking it is shocking because let's say for instance it would, a, a different profession now let's go carpentry why not what if I was to say look we want you to use a completely different tool in building this particular structure we're not going to give it to you in, in fact, work it out yourself, but we still want that built and we're going to be promoting it. I, I just, it's outrageous. I don't know as social workers why we put up with this. That's my milk crate moment, Mim. That's okay. Stand tall on that milk crate, Liz. I think it's a fair one. Um, it's actually amazing to me how little the policy works with the practice. And um, and you could and this is one of those stories where you could just really see how policy was written in such a disconnected way to the to the reality. I mean, nine weeks. The difference between nine weeks, seventeen weeks, and what did you say, twenty-two weeks? The difference. Those are just numbers on a page, but when you actually think about what that meant for this woman in this story, and what it means for all the women in the stories, right? Where actually now six weeks has passed, and that has changed completely what now can be done, it actually means the policy and the practice are 100% disconnected. And how important is information? You know, like we often say, oh, information's power. By crikey, it is, isn't it? So we need our social workers and health workers to be able to give accurate information to these women so that they can make a decision. So if you come to me at this stage in your pregnancy, I'm going to give you this bit of information. If you come a few weeks later, it's changed now. And so are the hurdles that you have to go through. So Mim, I would love to listen to Amy's story again, just to kind of count how many hurdles Amy would have had to have leapt over to have got the final termination. And this is a woman who's already living in a violent relationship. So with children, so it's not like she hasn't got her own huge amount of stresses going on outside of an unwanted pregnancy. And then, you know, even the little things like you've got to go back to your GP to get a referral. Even though you're right and now in a hospital emergency department. That's right. 
just, yeah, but I mean, it started off like that and it just continued on for this poor woman, didn't it? Well, can we take a minute to talk about the eight-person panel that got to make a decision about whether this was going to be allowed or not? And the fact that a conscience vote is built into the entire process so that at any point in time, any of those health professionals could have stepped out of the process, therefore meaning that potentially she couldn't have the abortion regardless. Well, that's right, because I know of a hospital in... um, Well, actually, I know of several hospitals who don't have the staff in order to perform abortions, right? So that would mean that those women have to find another public hospital that will do it. And if you're out of area, you will sometimes be turned away because one, the hospital may not be able to keep up with the demand that they have of their local people. Um, and and look, there are also areas in, in this state that uh, the Catholics the hospital is run by a Catholic organisation, they don't even offer termination. So what do those women do in that situation? Where do they go to? And yet they're still receiving public funding from governments. I, You know, like that just blows my mind. But if you take a theoretical lens to this for a second, that is literally what intersectionality tells us, that if you are living in a less, uh, less metro, more rural environment or regional environment, if you have a lower socioeconomic income, if you have uh, uh, language barriers, cultural barriers, etc., you will end up with poorer health outcomes, right? That's literally what that what the theory is sitting there saying and what the SDG goals and everything else is actually crying out for is saying this is and what the social worker at the end of the story said this is a healthcare issue this is actually not just about whether or not abortion should occur this is actually about the women's lives at the very center of this question and here comes my feminist perspective now I think that's part of the problem, Mim. I think the fact that this is a women's health issue is why we are experiencing these particular health issues around the issue of termination, because we know that health is a very patriarchal system. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, there is a very strong link because well, that's what I see in the work. And I think that's what this social worker was clearly saying. I actually want to continue my studies now and promote uh, women's health because there are some huge gaps in the services. We're making our women jump through multiple hurdles uh, and I want it to stop. And this is why I feel like if I can encourage more social workers to get into policy development, because this particular social worker, imagine Imagine what she would do in terms of developing a policy for terminations in health, public health, knowing what she knows now, knowing about the lived experience of her patients, knowing what she has to do and the the importance of accurate information and the types of support. I mean, she was actually talking about the fact that, you know, over 20 weeks, she essentially had to be talking about registering the birth, having a funeral, naming this baby. Um, all of that information's vital. But I would imagine if you're someone who doesn't work in this area, but you develop policy in some kind of, you know, 
lovely office in the inner city, you're not going to know that type of stuff. No, but that's exactly right. And then coming back to it being a feminist issue is that we know that reproductive health is absolutely fundamental, a patriarchal tool. So actually, when you look at it that way, if you've got people making decisions in policy that have not had experience from actually women who have lived through these processes and lived through what it actually means, the disconnection is absolutely enormous and therefore the potential for that policy to have real world implications is just massive. And I love that we can tell it through Amy's story because, you know, I just think it just helps for someone like me to actually hear a lived experience story of how a policy plays out just really hits at home, Mim. And I really hope that's been the case for our listeners because just coming around the corner in the state I live in is voluntary assisted dying. And I can guarantee we're going to be having some similar stories uh, this, you know, in a couple of months' time. Um, yeah, I, I just think the disconnect between the policy and the actual rolling it out, NDIS was another classic one. That's right. That's right. And and it ha- it's this. It's so routine now that that happens that it's uh, unsurprising, unfortunately. I think in the same way that this was Amy's story, which is so many women's story, this is actually a very classic social work story where you have a social worker in the middle of policy change really struggling with how to enact policy and how to support women in the middle of that process. And I really want to congratulate the social worker for the work that she did on this case, but all the social workers who have been there on the front lines trying to navigate this policy change, trying to stay true to their feminist values and actually put women at the centre of the story because actually that's what's missing every single time. Oh, again, beautifully said. And all I can say is you are my heroes. These social workers are my heroes, Mim. And if we can keep on telling their stories as well as the Amy's stories, I'm going to be as happy as a pig in mud. Yeah. Um, Just going back to what you said at the beginning of the episode, Liz, about how we do have an international audience and particularly thinking about our American colleagues in certain states who are really struggling with the criminal implications of working within this space and um, really reaching out that hand of support, but also saying if you have a story that you think um, would be... uh, really in the same way challenging um, standing by your values and challenging the policies that are happening for you in your space please reach out and let us know and we'd be really keen to hear how this actually looks in different spaces because what has happened for us is that nobody has learnt from the past our state is not the first state in Australia to be going through this and yet lessons have not been learnt and have not actually traveled throughout our country so let's not do that globally as well. Let's actually learn from each other in this space and what good social work practice can actually look like. Because I want to say there is plenty of room on my milk crate. You are more than welcome to get on the milk crate with me. I I love the milk crate stories. Um, You know, I might need to have a lie down after this because I think my blood pressure just went through the roof. But we, uh, well said, Mim, We, we actually want to support you to tell your stories and here for you. Yeah, yeah, we stand in solidarity in these really difficult times actually in malpractice for sure. Liz, it's, um, I know it's hard to sort of hear these stories and then have to think about it, but it's also kind of good to come back to a really passionate space 
because uh, I think as we go month to month telling these stories and airing this, it's really nice to come back to what is the essence of our social work practice? And it always is. It's that value space and it's those moments of passion that keep it going. And it, for me, it's a privilege. So, you know, I'm prepared for my blood pressure to go up any amount for, for these stories. So bring it on, sisters and brothers. So, Mim, I think we've, we can call this a wrap. It's been another great, great period of time spent with you and um, I'm glad we got to reflect on such an awesome story. I know, me too, Liz. Take care, everyone. We hope you have a good month. We hope you take care of yourselves. Speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.